This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. From ABC News headquarters, here is correspondent Aaron Katursky. The World Health Organization is now calling COVID-19 a pandemic, a characterization that effectively means there is no escaping exposure. In the days and weeks ahead, we expect to see the number of cases, the number of deaths, and the number of affected countries climb even higher. WHO has been assessing this outbreak around the clock, and we're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. This is the first pandemic caused by a coronavirus, but this one can be controlled if only countries detect, test, treat, isolate, and trace. We're going to assess that response coming up, but as infections mount in this country and around the world, we do want to get straight to our chief health and medical editor, Dr. Jennifer Ashton. She's answering your questions about COVID-19 with my colleague, Diane Macedo. The first one, how does a quarantine work as far as who gives a specific person the order to quarantine? So this is something that most people are completely unfamiliar with because we really haven't faced quarantines in this country in, in large proportion like this. But here's the first thing that's important for people to understand. Self-quarantine is not a staycation. Self-quarantine is done for a person who may have had an exposure to known coronavirus. And when you self-quarantine, the premise is that you're positive, that you actually have been infected. That's why it has to be rigid. It has to be by the book. There has to be significant and aggressive distancing. If you live in a home with other people, you know, it's not like you're having family meals. It's not like you're all in the kitchen together. It's not like you're sitting on the sofa together. It's hard. Um, it's logistically hard. It's psychologically hard. But it is done to, out of an abundance of caution, assuming that a person who's been exposed will, in fact, become positive. Um, in terms of what we'll, we're seeing here, here in Westchester, outside of New York City, in that kind of hot zone or epicenter, that is done for really three reasons. Number one, from an epidemiologic standpoint, we call it flattening the curve. What that does is it slows the spread of the virus, which then does two things uh, as a result. Number one, it protects the vulnerable populations because, again, it's not just you might get sick and do fine, but you might get sick and then infect someone with a pre-existing medical condition mm-hmm. or an elderly person who could potentially get very ill or even die. So it protects vulnerable populations and it buys time. And the timeline on this virus, especially here in the U.S., is critically important because there have been studies that have come out with very limited data we have on cor- this coronavirus, but based on other behavior of coronaviruses that suggest that if left unchecked, this virus doubles, the number of cases doubles every week. So literally every day matters. And this part of the question about who gives the order to quarantine, this is coming up in a case in Missouri right now where a family is denying that they were told to quarantine. So where does that order come from? So there's Dan Abrams, our senior legal analyst, spoke about the legal aspects of that. You know, I stay in my lane and just talk to the medical aspects. Yes, I think judges can give orders, but most of those 
recommendations are coming from physicians. And right now it's generally one person removed. So it's not if you know a person who knows a person who knows a person that you would self-quarantine. It's really, have you had contact with someone who either is positive or could likely be positive? So right now it's one person removed. But again, this is evolving. It's dynamic. It's changing. And we're seeing a lot of kind of, you know, figuring it out on the spot with the, with this issue of elective self-quarantine. Okay, this next question. My 15-year-old is leaving for a field trip to a student convention with 3,000 kids from all over the country. How worried should I be? They are flying and staying at a large hotel for four days. This is a really hard question. You know, I'm a mom of two college students who have just had uh, the remainder of their academic years canceled in person. Uh, One of them is moving out of her college dorm room as we speak. Um, I think that different schools and different levels are figuring that out on their own um, in real time. Obviously, a lot of large gatherings and schools are canceling or rescheduling, which is unfortunate in some ways, but I think it speaks to the uncertainty here that we don't know about the severity. Certainly, when you have groups of large students, large people, period, from all over the country in close prolonged contact, that is a risk. And we heard Dr. Tony Fauci yesterday kind of start to shift his tone to, it's not a matter of of if, but when, and it's not a matter of where you are in the country, it will be everywhere. So I think that's an individual um, concern and only the person can decide for themselves their level of risk tolerance. Next question is, if you do get the virus, what exactly is the specific treatment? No treatment right now. It's supportive. So we think that the vast majority of people will have mild or even possibly no symptoms. So you would stay at home just like you would do if you had gotten a virus or a cold or flu six months ago and you hadn't even heard of this. You would stay at home. You would rest. You would take plenty of fluids. If you had a fever or any body aches, you would take acetaminophen or ibuprofen. For the smaller subset of people who would develop severe symptoms and what we call lower respiratory tract illness, which would be bronchitis or pneumonia, they're going to need medical attention and and in some cases, hospitalization. Um, What we worry about, even though this is a virus, if it causes pneumonia, then you can get a bacterial super infection, which then would need antibiotics um, and IV fluids, in some cases, oxygen. But that's for hospitalized patients. So again, the good news is the majority will be fine and resolve on their own at home. But again, that's why we like people to stay home if they're sick. But we are going to see people that need hospitalization. And, and I think people need to be prepared for that. Doctor, any final thoughts for us today? I think, Diane, today um, there, we're going to start to see a shift of what's happening here in the U.S., primarily because of the cases in Washington, the cruise ship off the coast of California, and what's happening uh, here in the New York City suburbs. I think it's important for people to understand that because this situation is so dynamic, so evolving, there's so much unknown about this virus, to try to stay in the middle uh, of your reaction in terms of a measured response. It's not going to be the end of the world, but it's not going to be nothing either. And we have to therefore stay in the middle in terms of erring on the side of caution with taking common sense precautions, either as individuals or as populations. And also, as you always say, keeping your ear open for new but credible and credential data and information on this, because this is a time when that level of communication is more important than ever, because this does affect people's lives. ABC News Chief Health and Medical Editor Dr. Jennifer Ashton answering your questions on a day the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. ABC News contributor John Cohen 
formerly of the Department of Homeland Security, is here now with us. And calling this a pandemic, John, effectively means nobody can escape exposure. So where does that leave us in terms of response? Well, I think from a from an emergency management planning perspective and what state and local officials are doing, you know, as we speak is they are thinking through the worst case scenarios, what would happen uh, if they were dealing with a widespread outbreak within their communities. Uh, and they're thinking of all of the not just public health, but all of the other uh, actions or other activities within that jurisdiction that could be impacted. They're going to be thinking about hospital capacity. They're going to be thinking about if they have to do, if they have to transport a significant number of people to uh, care facilities outside of the uh, community. They're going to, they're thinking about, you know, should they be closing down schools? Should they be limiting widespread, you know, or large scale public gatherings? But they're also thinking about what happens if uh, their police and fire personnel, uh, if there if there are widespread uh, you know infections within or widespread outbreaks of the the virus within the police and firefighter uh, uh, communities. So, I mean, we've heard this time and time again, and Dr. Ashton, um, you know, reflected on this that in, in the early stages of a situation such as this, the plan is to you know re- restrict or minimize the potential that the virus gets introduced into the domestic environment. Uh, but and if it does, to be able to quickly detect, uh, contain uh, any local outbreaks, prevent them from becoming widespread, identify people who may have been exposed, identify others that they may have exposed. But the goal is to try to contain the spread of the of the virus. I think what we're hearing now is that uh, containment's not going to be the priority. Uh, harm mitigation is going to be the focus. Right, because if this is a pandemic and it's inevitable that people are going to get this virus, what are the best steps to slow the spread and and to give hospitals some time to catch up? Well, that's the key. So, I mean, we've heard this in, in from CDC officials and, and from Dr. Ashton is that, um, you know, what, what healthcare professionals are really concerned about are vulnerable populations, those with underlying um, medical issues, the, the elderly uh, and others. So, uh, Slowing the spread, part of that is enabled by government action, but quite frankly, a lot of it comes from the actions of individuals living in the community, and that's why information being provided by the by government authorities has to be accurate, has to tell people what to do, um, and it has to be believed. Uh, but you know, all of us in the community have a responsibility to do what we can do as well uh, to protect the vulnerable population, making sure we're not, you know, if we, if we feel symptomatic, if we're symptomatic, you know, we feel a cold or flu coming on, uh, then we should stay home. Uh, we've all heard reports about people uh, who were feeling sick, uh, maybe even people who tested positive, uh, and then they went out to, to attend an event, uh, you know, in, in a situation such as this. Each and every one of us has to take responsibility uh, to, to be a part of the solution. John Cohen, formerly of the Department of Homeland Security and now an ABC News contributor. And for what our government is telling the United States, we turn to the White House 
and ABC's Karen Travers, because of late, some of that information has been contradictory, Karen. And it's the president who's the one outlier in this. You have the Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar today on Good Morning America once again warning there will be more cases of novel coronavirus here in the United States. He said this is a virus. This will spread. And George Stephanopoulos asked him, is this the beginning, the middle or the beginning of the end? Like, Where are we in this timeline? And Secretary Azar said this is the beginning. Now, contrast that to what the president said just yesterday. He was still downplaying the outbreak and its long-term impact after a meeting with Senate Republicans. Uh, Aaron, he was asked by our colleague Mary Bruce, how long should Americans be prepared for the economy to suffer because of this outbreak? And he said uh, it will go away. Just stay calm. It will go away. So the president's message is be patient. It's all going to be fine. It's really striking to hear those different messages. And, And this was a big thing I was getting asked about this morning on ABC News Radio. Karen, because without clear uh, messaging from the government, as John Cohen said, uh, it does leave people scratching their head about what to do and how alarmed to be. Right. How serious should you take this? Serious enough, the government will say, that you should be prepared, but then they also keep saying, don't panic. And I think people do get confused. You know, we are uh, fully following this every day, hearing every statement that's coming out of every official in this administration, and we all admit that we're getting confused as to uh, the severity and how serious officials around here think it is. But I think if you do isolate just the president, you see top health officials on the same page, but it's the president who's trying to paint a much rosier picture than what everybody around him is also conveying. Anything new we should expect from the the White House or from the government today, Karen? Well, the president is sitting down today with Wall Street executives. He's trying to get input uh, from these bank CEOs, people from Goldman Sachs and Bank of America, on what they think would stabilize the stock market and what should be done by the government for an economic stimulus plan. Because, of course, there are very big growing concerns about the long-term impact of novel coronavirus. Uh, The president yesterday was pitching a payroll tax cut to Senate Republicans, and he said that this is a thing he'd like to move forward on, uh, maybe even through the election season. So far, the reaction has been, I think, lukewarm at best. Uh, They're going to have to come up with something else. The most interesting, if you want to get into the politics of it, the dynamic here is that Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, essentially said yesterday, I'm staying out of it, that this is up to the White House and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to negotiate and work out. Because if the president wants anything to get done on Capitol Hill, he is going to have to go through Nancy Pelosi. Notably, though, it's his Treasury Secretary, uh, Steve Mnuchin, who's been tasked with having those conversations with the Speaker. ABC's Karen Travers with us from the White House. Karen mentions the economic response, and there is more whiplash on Wall Street. As we speak, the Dow is down nearly 5 percent, more than 1,100 points Coronavirus has also put a focus on seniors and in particular nursing homes. And we're joined from our medical unit now here at ABC News by Dr. Imran Ali, uh, who works with the elderly population. Uh, Dr. Ali, thank you for joining us. Why is this hitting seniors so hard? Well, the big issue is that nursing homes don't meet the same standards of an acute care facility hospital. So infection rates at these centers have been a problem for a long time. And I think it's mostly because of the lack of funding to these programs in these areas. And I think now people are now focusing more on infection control. 
plus seniors have a reduced immune system, weakened immune system, and generally they also have other underlying heart disease and lung problems as well, which makes them more susceptible to any kind of respiratory virus, whether it be coronavirus, the flu, respiratory syncytial virus, among others. So seeing this kind of respiratory spread of a viral illness has been common, but now with this particularly uh, virulent strain, we're seeing a lot of fatalities because it really affects the airways in such a way where it causes severe inflammation, making it difficult to breathe, often requiring mechanical ventilatory support. Uh, this is very scary for anyone with a, with a relative in a nursing home. And in the Seattle area, we've heard of families that weren't getting good information. They weren't, in some cases, able to say goodbye to a, a loved one who had died. Is there advice for elder care in this time of a COVID-19 pandemic? Well, the thing is, right, as of this morning, a lot of the places, even this morning when I was going to the nursing home, they're restricting visitors. Some places are as strict as restricting all visitors, all relatives, uh, unless they're actively dying. Uh, You know, for example, if somebody is on hospice and they're actively dying, they'll allow maybe some family members to be at the bedside, but they're being so strict in, um, you know, restricting visitors. And that also has, you know, long-term effects on patients with dementia and depression. So this is a really double-edged sword. But, you know, according to the Kaiser Health Studies in the past three years, 9,000 nursing homes in the, across the country have been cited by inspectors for lapses in infection control and the Centers for Medicaid uh, uh, are really taking this into account, and they're actually deploying inspectors now to really crack down and, you know, try to close these gaps because uh, it's been long known that respiratory illnesses or and also gastrointestinal viral illnesses have been um, spreading in these uh, nursing home facilities. And so in a move to control infection, loved ones are just going to have to wait this out and, and not not visit? I mean, that's what it is. Some places have a one family member at a time policy. Some places have a strict nobody can come. Uh, some places are doing, you know, screenings. Uh, these screenings will be a couple of questions at the door. Uh, you'll have to sign in and a logbook, uh, and you'll have to have your temperature taken uh, before you enter. So some places are a little bit more strict where they can not allow anybody to come in. But, uh, I mean, it depends on your facility. And most likely the medical directors of these facilities will make their own rules. But the guidelines are now saying that at least, you know, make it so at least less people can come in. So maybe one or two at a time uh, can visit the family member, unless, of course, if they're actively dying. Uh, Dr. Imran Ali from our medical unit here at ABC News as our focus is on seniors and nursing homes where the bulk of deaths from coronavirus in this country have occurred. I want to bring in ABC's James Longman, if I could, our our senior foreign correspondent who is now uh, self-quarantining in the United Kingdom where he lives, but he had been in Italy because elder care in Italy, James, is so much different in that uh, elderly members of the family uh, live with the family. That they're not isolated in nursing homes, but that has taken a toll, in particular, on Italy. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Aaron. I mean, I think there's a cultural difference there. You know, Italians tend to keep elderly people at home, 
Um, whilst that may mean that they don't have this issue of infection spreading, as we've just been hearing, what that could mean, though, is that younger people who live with them, who are more mobile, are better able to spread the virus, even though they themselves may not be displaying any symptoms of it. And that perhaps is the reason why Italy has seen such an enormous uh, crisis unfold. And actually, just in the last few moments, we've had the latest numbers now. Italy is reporting 827 fatalities uh, from coronavirus since this crisis began. There are over 1,000 people, 1,028 according to the Civil Protection Unit, uh, in intensive care at the moment. And that's where Italy's struggle is because they just don't have the facilities to care for all these people at the same time. Um, and the vast majority of people getting sick and dying in Italy are in their 70s, 80s and 90s. Uh, and it is really, an act, it's kind of, they're on a war footing, essentially. That's what officials are saying. It feels like this virus has declared an act of war on Italy. And that is why we've seen this massive lockdown across the country, police enforcing it, over 60 million people, the population of Italy, entirely restricted in a desperate effort to try to keep this illness at bay. But it does seem to be paying off because actually a couple of days ago, we started to hear that that first region, Cadonia, where I was just outside of just when the, the first reports were emerging, that town, those, that collection of towns is now no longer reporting daily cases. So it does seem that these restrictions work and that the, the Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte is hoping that his uh, these emergency measures that he's put in place now in Italy are going to see that mirrored across the country. James Longman, our senior foreign correspondent here at ABC News, with perspective overseas from Italy, where he was, he's now home in the United Kingdom. And I want to turn to ABC's Alex Stone next, because as we see the measures that Italy and some other countries are taking, of course we wonder whether there are cities and states in this country that are prepared to take any similar measures. What are you hearing from folks in California and from Washington State, Alex? Well, they're beginning right now, Aaron. Some areas of California, yeah, they're limiting the size of gatherings in San Francisco and Santa Clara County. And right now, but this is, is the, the sound the of a news conference that we're watching of Washington Governor Jay Inslee. He's announcing that they're limiting the size of gatherings in his state to under 250 attendees, at least in three counties. He says now is the time that they're at a point in his state where they need to ramp up what they're doing. 24 dead in Washington, dozens more who have COVID-19, and he says it could get much worse. So today he's making the announcement that in those counties, three counties right around Seattle, they're going to limit the size of crowds. Uh, simply a astonishing way that coronavirus has uh, affected uh, American social norms and, and, and ways of life in certain communities. Uh, there is also in California the Princess cruise ship uh, that is docked in Oakland, and they're still taking passengers off. That's right. They're only about two-thirds of the way done with that, that they have been very slowly, one by one, taking the passengers off of that cruise ship. Remember, about a 1,000 of those on board were over the age of 70. So in, in some cases, it is wheelchairs, it is walkers getting folks off, trying to figure out who has COVID-19 on board, who does not. They hope to wrap that up today. But they don't know. It may stretch into another day. They've got most of the Californians off, most of the Canadians off. Now they're working on those who are U.S. citizens but live elsewhere in the U.S. and will be going to other states to, to do quarantine. But flying above that ship, above the, the Princess cruise ship right now, the yellow flag. 
that is the, the sign that there is contagion on board, something contagious. You don't see that very often in modern day, that yellow flag flying above the Grand Princess. ABC's Alex Stone with us from Los Angeles. The World Health Organization expresses alarm about mounting infections and slow government responses and now declares coronavirus a global pandemic. But the World Health Organization also said it is not too late for countries to act and is imploring those countries to do so. For my colleagues, I'm Aaron Katursky. You've been listening to an ABC News special. ABC News. Honored. Winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News. America's number one news choice. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.